Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this covenant, or this command rather, to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Well, this is one of those passages, um, you know, when, when as a pastor, when I'm studying the passage throughout the week and trying to prepare to preach, to know what to say this morning. Uh, this is one of those passages that seems pretty common in Malachi so far. You know, you've heard the saying, physician, heal thyself. You know, you've heard the, you've heard the saying, uh, preaching, something, something about preaching to the choir. This is a text that feels like I should be preaching in a mirror. You know, it's, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's prime, it's primary application is for uh, the ministers of God's word. And so, again, as always, I, we have to say, uh, while that is the primary application of, of a text like this, uh, I think there are definitely applications for all of us who know the Lord uh, in the church today as well. And hopefully we'll see some of that as we go through the text. This is a difficult text in some ways. God rebukes his priests for corrupting his covenant with Levi. And he tells them, you know, uh, uh, that the priests, much like the pastors of, of our day, he tells them the priest was supposed to be, quote, verse 7, the messenger of the Lord of hosts. You know, when you think of a priest in the Old Testament, maybe you think of the offerings and sacrifices and all of that. But he tells them at the end of the day, the main, their main, you know, what's the old saying now? You have you had one job. They had one job. And that job primarily was to be a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And that's the job that they had miserably failed at. A true priest of God, a true minister of any time, uh, is, is supposed to be like Levi. As such, true instruction, it says, was to be found in his mouth. And his example was to be one of, quote, walking with God in peace and uprightness. Verse 6, and the result of all that for a faithful minister was that uh, a faithful minister just like Levi uh, before them were to what? Turn many away from iniquity. Verse 6. That's what a minister is supposed to do and to be like. But the priests in Malachi's day that God has to rebuke here were the polar opposite of that. Now, if you had, to use the analogy of a picture, if you had a picture of Levi, their picture was the, was the negative flip side of it. Everything he was doing right, they did the opposite of and were doing wrong. Uh, 
they, they did not walk with God as Levi did, but had what? Turned aside from the way and even caused many to stumble by their instruction. Verse 8. And so in many ways, uh, the sad state of the nation of Israel at that time, uh, both in their careless approach to worship and serving God, as well as in the chastisements that they were experiencing at God's hand for it, in many ways, you could, you could point to the root of it was the sins and faults of the unfaithful priests who had corrupted God's covenant with the Levites and led many astray from God's law. You know, they, they say, I, I've read people say things in our, in our day, uh, Christian theologians and whatnot, say that, that culture flows downstream from religion. And I think they even say culture and politics. And, you know, we, we like to think that those two things are separate, but they really aren't. And so if you are lamenting the state of our country today and the state even of the Christian religion in our day, in our country, um, in a lot of ways, the faults of those things, people are responsible for their own sins, but the faults of those things in a lot of ways really do um, lie at the feet of the ministers of God's gospel and the failures that they have in many ways uh, committed in, in what they have done and not done in serving God. You know, it was the fault of those unfaithful priests who had corrupted God's covenant and were leading people to, to violate God's law. And God brought great chastisements for it. That's not just an Old Testament thing that happens today, too. And so here in our text, in this brief text, we're going to see God rebuking them, the priests, for their manifest sins and shortcomings. He's going to remind them of the godly example of Levi, who had came before them, that they were supposed to have followed. And he really, it may not seem like it, but... Uh, it may seem rather stern the way that God talks here, but he really even graciously warns them and calls them to repentance for these things. You know, he's basically telling them at this moment it wasn't too late for them to turn from their wicked ways and follow God in earnest. If all he wanted to do was just judge them and take them away, there's no reason to warn them at all. But God warns them that they might turn. And I think this... This passage, although it may seem so far removed from us in our day, we don't have a temple like they do. We don't do sacrifices like they did. But I think the message of Malachi throughout the book, and especially in this text, is very relevant for us in the church today. I think, we, I think if you look at it, you'll, I think you will come to the same conclusion that you see, like I do, many of the same kinds of things, a different manifestation of it, but the same kind of things going on in our own day. Do we not have uh, people in positions of ministry and leadership in the church who likewise fail to walk with God and who likewise fail to teach the whole counsel of God faithfully and who also fail to turn people away from iniquity? That, that job description of the priest that he gives by describing Levi is still the same job description in many ways of those who would be ministers of the gospel today. May God use his word in this text to reform us to reform his church and bring us to repentance wherever it may be needed, that he might use us for his glory and lead many to the Savior, that they might turn from iniquity and turn to Christ through our testimony to him in the gospel and live. Well, let's look at a few things from our text. The first thing we see here is God's warning, God's warning to his unfaithful messengers. They were to be messengers of the Lord of hosts, and God, God calls them to account. Look at verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4, God tells them, And now, O priests, this command is for you. 
you know, they were used to giving other people commands. He's like, I've got a command for you. This isn't for you to give to the people. This is for you to take to heart yourself. This command is for you if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. You know, the Bible says in 1 Peter 4.17 that it's the time for the judgment to begin where? With the household of God. He starts with his church first. As strange as that may sound to our ears, judgment begins with the household of God. In that judgment, I think it's only just and fitting that it should begin with the ministers in God's house. That's a frightening and sobering thought. But, you know, in many ways, the Bible teaches, you know, as, as go the ministers, so go the people. I think that's a, a truism that the scripture bears out and experience does as well. As go the ministers of the gospel, so go the people by and large. And so it's not without reason that James 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 1 says this. Uh, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Why? For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's easy to read that passage and nod our head. It's easy for me to do it, nod my head. But it should be a kind of a frightening thing to think about. Anytime we at Presbytery or in a church take someone on as a candidate for the gospel ministry, it's one of those passages we should read to them. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, there's a, not only is there a great blessing in ministry, but there's great responsibility as well. Um, as much good as a godly pastor can do by the grace of God, even so an unfaithful minister can do great harm among the flock of God in leading them astray from the gospel and from God's law. And so God tells the priests, he says, and now, verse 1, and now, O priest, this command is for you. And as if to make the point, that should have been enough, but he says, he tells them basically to listen, verse 2, and to take it to heart. You know, that, that's, this command is for the priests, it's for the ministers, but that's a good description of what every person, every believer's attitude should be toward the preaching and teaching of the word of God, isn't it? That should be a picture of what it should mean for anyone to hear the word of God rightly. That's how you should listen to every sermon that you hear, every Lord's Day, every, every Bible study class that you take. And there's two things there. First, you must actually listen. You must actually listen to the preaching of the word of God. You know, there's a difference between hearing and listening, isn't there? Lots of people hear sermons every week. Every Sunday for years and years and years on end without listening. They hear them, but they don't listen. There's a big difference between mere hearing and actually listening. And so I'll ask this morning, do you listen to the word of God? Do you really listen to it as it's preached and taught? I hope, I believe that you do. And likewise, there's more than just listening. Listening is a good start. Better than hearing, but there's more to it than listening. You must also take the word of God to heart when you listen to the preaching of God's word. That means, you know, in some ways, that means that you, you know, you understand that this applies to you. It isn't just for those people out there. It's not just for the people next to you in the seats. It applies to you in some way, shape, 
or form. It applies to you personally in some way. You know, when you hear the preaching on any particular text, I know a text like this might take a little bit more work to do since you're not pastors and whatnot, but, you know, is there a sin in, that, that's in your life that's being addressed in the text, either directly or indirectly? Uh, is there, is there uh, something present in your heart and life that God would have you repent of and change? Is there, is there a Christian duty, either in a matter of godliness or in good works and serving God, that is somehow missing or absent from your life that needs amending? Those are the kinds of things we need to look at when we hear the word of God being preached and read. It's not enough to see how God's word applies to other people out there. It's, it's an easy thing as a pastor to get into that trap, just to talk about the sins of the people outside these walls and to spend most of our time talking about that. Um, but it, we need to know that God's word applies to those in here as well. Uh, do we know, do we see not just how it applies to others in here, but that it applies to you yourself? Uh, we should take the words of James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 to heart where he says this, James 1, 22 to 25, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Why? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, where he looks at himself and goes away uh, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law is not a terrible thing, it's a law of liberty, and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. There is blessing. God promises blessing for, the, for his people when we walk, however imperfectly, according to God's ways. There's great. It's a law of liberty. Sin is the thing that restricts your freedom. Following God is not a restriction on anything good. and It promises blessing, God does, for those who follow it. Uh, his will and his word. But, you know, that, that picture that he gives of the man with the mirror, you know, it, it's as if, you know, picture somebody, they get up in the morning, they're brushing their teeth, they're, I don't have to worry about combing my hair, but, you know, they're combing, they have hair, they're combing their, or they're looking at the mirror, oh, my hair is messed up, I've got food in my teeth, my, my collar's all cockeyed, and they leave the house anyway. Like, and they get to work, or they get to school, and their friends or their coworkers say, I'll, I'll use my own name, Andy, what in the world? You know, do you not own a mirror? And what would I say? Well, sure I do. I looked at it this morning. What else do you want me to do? Well, it's obvious. Well, you saw what the problems were. Why didn't you do something about it? It's, it's, a, it's a silly picture. It's a silly image. And it's a, a very serious image when it's applied to people not doing uh, God's word, but just hearing it. And there's a blessing promise for every believer who makes a sincere effort and makes it her, his or her sincere aim to be a doer of God's word and not just hearing it. Hearing God's word is better than not hearing it at all, but let us never be content to be hearers of sermons or of the words. But God warns the priests here that if they don't listen and take his word to heart, he was going to send the curse upon them. That's a pretty strong word. Send the curse upon them and even curse their blessings. The very things that they thought were going to be blessings that God had promised for the faithful ministry of what he called them to do, he was going to turn those very blessings into curses. He was going to curse those blessings. You know, the, very, the very things that marked God's blessing upon them, if they were faithful in carrying out their ministry that he had called them to as priests, would be cursed if they didn't repent. And, I, and think about that. In other words, 
they, there would be no mistaking what was going on. These weren't going to be random chastisements with no outward and obvious connection to their sins. God was going to curse the very things that were supposed to be blessed if they had been faithful in what they were called to do. And in fact, God tells them that he had already started to curse them because they had not taken his word to heart. He's, he's really give them, giving them a second or third warning here. He's saying, in a, in a sense, you should have seen what was going on in your life and recognized that I was displeased. They should have looked at God's acts of providence in them and around them and said, something's wrong. God is not pleased with our ministry or with our sacrifices. They had already seen the evidence of God withdrawing his hand of blessing from them, and they had failed to take the hint. They had failed to repent. Do we not see the same kind of thing in our, in our nation today? God removing his hand of blessing for all the wickedness he sees, and yet we just, as a nation, shrug our shoulders and just go merrily along. In verse 3, God warns them that he was going to rebuke their offspring, or their seed, King James puts it that way. And this is a, a very gross uh, picture here to think of. He was going to rebuke their offspring and spread dung on their faces. Spread, I mean, that's, there's not much more of a degrading picture than that. Some commentators take the Hebrew word for seed there. Uh, the word offspring is the word seed in Hebrew. They take it kind of literally, and they take it as God sending blight on their crops. And that is certainly a possible interpretation, but if you consider the fact that God uses that very same word later in verse 15, which refers to their offspring or descendants, I think that would seem to make it likely that God is intending that same meaning here as well. God, you know, Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 verse 5 tells us that God very often visits the iniquity of fathers on their children. To the third and fourth generations of those who, what does he say, hate me? And the good news is, what does he say after that? But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's a, that's a promise of blessing for those who repent and seek to serve God. But God very often visits those same iniquities on the children, uh, which is also a rebuke to the parent. What a vivid and disgusting picture of shame and degradation that is to have dung spread on their face. And notice that this dung... Uh, what, what, was, what is he referring to? I won't get graphic here, but the dung he's talking about was kind of the, the guts, the filth, the excrement of the very animals that they had sacrificed. He doesn't just say, I'm going to spread dung on your face. He says, I'm going to spread the dung of your sacrifices. The, the dung from the feasts that they had been doing in the temple, that's what they were going to have spread on their faces. And so the punishment was going to fit the crime. And then he says... Uh, in verse 3, that they were going to be taken away with it. In other words, again, not to be gross, but the, the waste, the things that you have to get rid of from these things that you would never want to have around during the feast, he's going to take the priests away with that. That's a threat. I mean, that's, that is a uh, threat of, of, of God's chastisement, if, if nothing else. You know, I can't think of a, a better way to put it, but it's kind of like saying, I'm going to flush you. What do you do with that kind of stuff? You get rid of it. And that's, that's what God, that is kind of God's um, judgment upon what they were doing as ministers. And that, I think, still applies today to those who aren't faithful to the word of God in their preaching and teaching. And yet, despite all this, there's nothing but mercy 
and kindness and the fact that God warns them. And if God just wanted to do it, he could have just done it. Remember, remember Jonah, the book of Jonah in the city of Nineveh? If God's whole intent was to, was to destroy Nineveh, would he have sent Jonah? No. In fact, Jonah knew that's why God sent him. And Jonah wasn't happy about it. He knew that God was sending them a warning because he wanted to show mercy. And that's exactly what he did. God, God very often warns and gives calls to repentance for sin. And that's an act of mercy. Even now, as bad as things were, as even though God's judgment had started, his curses had started to come upon them, there were still a place left for repentance. And he did all this that his covenant with Levi, verse 4, might stand or continue. So he, he warns them, he rebukes them. The second thing he does here is God doesn't just give them a warning and a call to repent, but he gives them a reminder. He gives them a reminder and an example of what a faithful priest was to be. Look at verses 5 through 7. In 5 through 7, he, he reminds them, remember Levi. Here's what Levi did. Here's what you're supposed to do. Verses 5 through 7, he writes this. My covenant, God says, with him, with Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him, life and peace. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So God is saying to them, you as priests or as ministers today, you are to be a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And if you want to know what a faithful messenger of the Lord of hosts looked like, look at Levi. And God described him. Think of the gracious description God gives of Levi here. Was Levi a sinless man? Was Levi a perfect man? Was Levi a perfect priest or minister? No. None. Did Levi ever fall short in his teaching? Yes. Did Levi ever fall short in his instruction? Yes. If he were standing there, he would nod his head and, and say and, and shout, yes, of course. And yet look at God's, in his mercy, look at God's uh, assessment of the ministry of Levi. That he feared God, he stood in awe of his name, true instruction was in his mouth, no wrong, no injustice found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from iniquity. That his lips guarded knowledge as the priest because he was the true and faithful messenger of the Lord of hosts. The first thing he says is his covenant with Levi was one, verse 5, of life and peace. Now, calling it a covenant of life and peace may sound strange to our ears, but what's he saying? He's saying that that's what God promised to him upon faithful, uh, the faithful ministry that God had called him to do. That God would give him a, a, a blessing and a gracious reward for his faithfulness, not perfection, but his faithfulness in ministry. Ministry may be hard and laborious, and that was no doubt true in Levi's day as well. But it's never meant to be drudgery. It's never meant to be without attendant blessings by God's mercy and grace. God reminds them in verse 5 that it was a covenant of fear. And he feared me and stood in awe of my name. Now, this fear of God is a must for every believer. The fear of God is a must for every believer. If you read the Bible at all, if you read the book of, of Proverbs, I think you'll see over and over again the, the writer of Proverbs 
enjoining the fear of God, the right fear of God upon us as Christians. But that's even more the case for anybody who would be a minister in God's church. It must be a person who fears God. Now, this fear, we've talked about it recently before in recent weeks. This fear of God that he speaks of is not a slavish terror. It's a filial or familiar fear and awe. It's It's the fear of a son for his father. It's a family type fear. So it's a fear that's mixed with love and adoration. It's not a slave kind of kind of fear. Uh, it's, it's the fear of God that will, will prevent the sinful fear of man, which every minister is tempted to. It's the fear of God that will, will prevent unfaithfulness in the duties of ministry, as well as unfaithfulness in life. The fear of man leads to, if you look at verse 9, partiality in instruction. What does that mean? He tells him, this is what you've done. You've been partial. You, it, it, the word literally means to behold the face. You, you basically behold who you're talking to and change how you teach in comparison to that. And so they, they, their fear of man led them to partiality and instruction in God's law. And so what that meant was, you know, in some ways, the hard words were never spoken to some, but only smooth things, only pleasant things. The fear of God, though, will make a faithful minister of God speak the truth in love and make the whole counsel of God known, regardless of who he's talking to, whether in public or in private. Levi stood in awe, he says, of God, of God's name, while these priests, back in verse 6 of chapter 1, had despised God's name. He's drawing quite a a comparison here. If the priests wanted the blessings of God's covenant with Levi... They would need more than the mere claim to the name and office or title of Levi as a priest. They would need to imitate the faith and the faithfulness of Levi as well. In verses 6 and 7, the prophet Malachi gives what I think is a really neat portrait or picture of what a minister should look like at any time or any age. This, verses 6 and 7, I think, is what any minister or pastor should aspire to. This is what a messenger of the Lord of hosts should look like. In verse 6, he gives us at least three things, three basic necessities or attributes of a faithful minister. And this is what we should seek after and demand of our ministers. First, he tells us true instruction. uh, You could also translate this the law of truth. True instruction was in his mouth. True instruction was in his mouth. The teaching of a godly minister must consist of faithfully preaching and teaching the people the word of God. That's it. Teach God's word. Not your own ideas, not your own opinions, not your own anything. Teach them the word of God faithfully. The word of truth, uh, the, the, the law of truth must be in his mouth. Conversely, on the other side of that coin, no wrong or no injustice was found on his lips. A faithful minister of God does not twist or pervert the law of God. He doesn't lead people astray by his teaching. He doesn't omit or water down the demands of God's law in the lives of the people of God. There are great temptations to do just that. You know, there are, I was thinking about this uh, even this morning, you know, there, there are certain sins uh, that our culture hates. There are some things that our culture hates. And so what you'll find very often is many pastors and ministers and teachers We'll spend all our time harping on those sins because no one gets offended by it. But there are sins that our culture embraces. And those are sins that many a pastor is afraid to touch. 
and will, it will soft pedal, omit, and leave leave unsaid. But a true a true messenger of the Lord of Hosts does not do that. The, the true instruction is on his, in his mouth, and nothing wrong is found on his lips. Second, the second thing, we are told that he walked with me. Verse six, he walked with me in peace and uprightness. So it's not just the words of the minister that are important, but his walk, his daily life as well. Uh, For the minister teaches and influences others around him, not just by his words, but by his actions as well. That's a a tall order. That's a convicting, I I think in many ways, in some ways, I think it's easier to do the, the teaching part. But it's very hard to keep your teaching and your walk in line and consistently. Because very often you'll undo, you can undo the good things you say with how you live. And God forbid that any pastor would do such a thing, but very often that is, that is the case. The one can't do without the other. In fact, to have the words right and the walk wrong will result in undoing any of the good that those words might have done otherwise. Third thing, he turned many from iniquity. Verse 6. And I think what that is, I think that's the natural outworking of the first two. It's certainly the goal, right? The the law of truth was in his mouth. Nothing unjust was on his lips. And he walked with God in peace and uprightness. And he turned, therefore, many from iniquity. I think that's the, the outworking of those first two things. And it certainly should be the goal, the goal of teaching and of the example of a pastor is to turn others from iniquity. And this, this certainly involves both people inside the church as well as outside of it. You know, for a minister to seek to turn the wicked and unrepentant from their sins is evangelism. That's really all it is. You're calling people to, to believe on Christ and repent uh, to him for salvation. You know, in the scriptures, in the Bible, the, the message of the gospel clearly includes a call to repentance. Read the Gospels, read the book of Acts, which, what you will find commonly, both in Jesus' own preaching as well as that of the apostles. The Gospel message includes a call, a very uh, stern call to repentance and faith. Likewise, the faithful minister is to seek in all things to turn the people of God away from iniquity. And we read this morning in, Acts, or excuse me, in, in Exodus chapter 32 of the sad example of Aaron. What did Aaron fail to do? When the people said, make us gods, what did he do? He said, okay, give me your gold and we'll do this. You know, and, and remember, where did they get that gold from? The people of, in, in Egypt. Remember, they plundered the Egyptians. Well, now what they do? They, they, apparently, they took more than the gold with them. They took the idols with them in their hearts. And they had Aaron fashion those, those idols. Aaron, what should Aaron have done? He should have turned them away from committing idolatry in their sin of worshiping the golden calf. He never should have gone along with their request to make the idol. And look at the excuses he made when he tells, when Moses asks him what's, what's going on. Well, you know these people. They're stiff-necked. You know how they are. And then they, they gave me gold and I threw it in the fire and out jumped this golden calf. You know, I, I'm almost surprised there's not more in that text from Moses going, what? <laughs> what did you just say? Um, you know, it, it's, he never should have gone along with it. And look at the damage that was done. First, God was greatly displeased. His wrath was kindled against his own people. uh, And 3,000 people were killed by the sword of the Levites that day. 
And then after that, because that wasn't enough, a plague broke out. And the plague broke out upon whom? Those who had committed that sin. It's, it's amazing. It only took them over a month when Moses was away on top of the mountain to, uh, to fall into gross idolatry and pagan worship. All in the name of the Lord. Let's sacrifice to the Lord. It's Yahweh, right? But they certainly weren't worshiping God in doing, in doing that. Now, it was because the tribe of Levi had answered Moses' call. Remember Moses saying, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Who was it that came to Moses? Who lifted their hands, so to speak, and went forward? It was the Levites, right? It's that God called them to be his priests. That's, that's why he did that. That's, that's why God called them to be his priests. Uh, and what had they done? They had obeyed the Lord in putting to death the idolaters. That's why God made his covenant with them uh, that, that had been there that day. It says they were ordained, verse 29 of Exodus 32, ordained for the service of the Lord. And then it says this, so that he might bestow a blessing upon them. God blessed them for their faithfulness to him in what they did. Last but not least, the Lord sums the whole matter up in verse 7 where he says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Your translation may say preserve. Preserve knowledge. Guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now that word guard or keep in the King James has the idea of, of keeping watch over something diligently to preserve it and protect it. In this case, it means a minister must see to it that the word of God is known, maintained, and followed among his people. To preserve the knowledge of God and his word doesn't mean to tuck it away in a safe. It doesn't mean, oh, I've got to make sure nothing happens to my Bible. I'm going to put it in a safe place. If anybody says, hey, do you have a Bible in your church? Yep, it's in our safe deposit box over at the bank. And it's, nothing's going to happen to it. It's fireproof. It's theft-proof. We're good. No, to preserve knowledge means to teach the people. Faithfully, the whole counsel of God. And the main reason for that is quite simply because when you boil it all down to its essence, to be a messenger of the Lord of hosts uh, is to do just that, to preserve knowledge. To be a minister of God ultimately is to be a messenger of the Lord of hosts, to be his ambassador, to give his message and not your own. That's what a pastor is to do. We are never to bring our own message our own thoughts but God's from his word and so that's what every faithful minister should be and do and you as Christians should expect nothing less you should settle for nothing less than that not eloquence not giftedness but you should settle for nothing less than someone giving God's word to you in all of its completeness a pastor should be a messenger of the Lord of hosts and give God's word to God's people. If you, if you have to move at some point, if you move away or, or whatever the case, someday when I'm not here, when you look for another pastor, what should you look for? Go to Malachi chapter 2 and look at verses 6 and 7 and say, that's what we're looking for. That's the kind of minister we need. If you move and you look for another church, that's what you should look for. And don't settle for anything less. Well, the last thing we see in our text this morning is God's rebuke, God's rebuke to his unfaithful ministers or priests. Once again, God singles out the priests for warning and rebuke, and I think the reason for that is simple. Their sins were leading sins. Their sins led other people to sin likewise. Their sins and shortcomings in both their example as well as in their teaching 
had a very bad effect on the faith and life of the people of Israel. Now, the Lord gives another similar rebuke in the minor prophets in the book of Hosea. You might know the book of Hosea and have read that. In Hosea 4, 6, the Lord tells the priests that the people perished for lack of knowledge. Whose fault was that? Tells them the priests. The people perished for lack of knowledge. And the reason for that was Hosea uh, 4, 6, was that the priests had rejected knowledge. You don't, you don't want to keep the knowledge of, of me for yourself, so you don't even teach them, and they perish for a lack of it. They have rejected knowledge. And so it was in Hosea 4, 9, he says, and it shall be like people, like priest. If the priests reject knowledge, what's going to happen to the people? They're going to perish for lack of it. They're not going to have it either. The people would follow the bad teaching and the bad example of the priests and both together would suffer the consequences of their unfaithfulness to God. In our text, after reminding them about Levi, the great example that he had set by God's grace, God tells them that they had not been following his example. Look at verses 8 and 9 as we close. He talks about Levi and all he did. Then he says, but you. Look, remember what Levi did. But you, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. Levi did such and such, but you don't. Ouch. Like that, that's really what he's saying. What had they done? You know, we just saw what Levi did. What did they do? They turned, Levi had turned many from iniquity. What had the priests done? They themselves had turned aside from the way. Not only were they not turning other people from iniquity, they were turning aside to iniquity themselves. They had turned aside from the way, and instead of the law of truth being found in their mouths, verse 6, they had caused many, literally it says this, they had caused many to stumble at the law. To stumble at the law, verse 8. They were doing the very opposite of what a faithful minister should do. And so, because they had corrupted God's covenant with Levi and despised his name, God was going to return the favor. He would, you know, in turn, make them despised and abased before all the people. If they don't want to honor God, God was going to dishonor them, and that's exactly what he threatened to do. They had shown partiality in their instruction. Uh, The King James says partial in the law. The word law really is there in the text. In other words, they, they had probably taken it rather easy on the sins of some people in the church, probably the wealthy and the influential among God's people. And the motives for doing that are not difficult for us to see, are they? That happens now. That is not some Old Testament Israel kind of thing. That, that I have seen that. You have probably seen it as well. Uh, they probably sought prestige and prosperity from those people. But the result would be that God would make them despised and abased before all the people. And may we always seek to serve the Lord and please him in all things and let him be the one who lifts us up with blessing and honor as he sees fit. But if we dishonor God in how we seek to live or serve him, he will surely bring us low if we don't repent. And that goes for, for pastors as well. It goes for us first. That should be a very sobering thing for not just pastors to think about, but anybody to think about. You know, if you're listening to this message and you are not yet repentant, 
and have not turned to Christ by faith for salvation, let God's dealings with his own household, even with his ministers, his priests, be a warning to you to repent and believe the gospel without delay. Be reconciled to God. What does 1 Peter 4.17 says? 1 Peter 4.17 says this. I've read, read part of it already. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, if, if you're an unbeliever, if you have still not turned to Christ by faith, um, very often we have, uh, in, our, in our unbelief, we tend to have this thing, well, you know, I've sinned, I've done this, and no lightning bolt has struck me yet. I haven't seen God's wrath yet. But you look at the way God deals with his own people. I mean, he saves us by his grace, but even his own ministers, God judges at times. Very, very harshly and somewhat justly, but harshly. He judges the priests of all the people. He didn't take their sins lightly at all. In fact, he judged them for it. If God will do that to his own people, even to his ministers, what will he do to those who don't obey the gospel of Christ? Judgment will certainly come. Be reconciled to God and turn to Christ by faith that you might live. Let's, let's pray.